scrap, 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 scrap. I mean, I'm fierce, I'm mad, I'm rude, I got that pro fighter attitude. I'm in the octagon with the podcast on, let's talk about it on Scrapitude. You know I've been the best, grab my belt and begin to flex a wild, I might hit the rep. We got the winner circle segments and the two on five takeaways with Tim and Jeff. So just kick back, grab a brew, it's fight night. So you know what we have to do, whether a power punch or a grapple move. You know we got you covered on Scrapitude, so just kick back, grab a brew, it's fight night. So you know what we have to do, whether a power punch or a grapple move. You know we got you covered on Scrapitude, yeah. Scrap, scrap. What's up, everybody, and welcome to Tim Talk 285. This is Timothy talking, taking you coast to coast, doing the most. Thank you all for tuning in. For those unfamiliar, this podcast focuses on three key perspectives, an aggregate of the odds makers, a look at the numbers courtesy of the Scraptitude Analytics database, and that of myself, a decade-plus watcher of MMA studying the film and filling all the details in between. The last event I covered on Tim Talk was UFC 284, and as is customary, I'll review the results of those fights covered. The first fight I covered was Yair Rodriguez versus Josh Emmett. While we got the victor correct in Yair Rodriguez, I was wrong thinking that Josh Emmett would be able to gut it out to a decision. Yair Rodriguez picked him apart, a surgical performance. I was much closer with my Islam Makachev versus Alexander Volkanovsky prediction, where I had Makachev winning by decision. I knew that Volkanovsky, as an athlete, as a fighting intelligence, and as a technician, would give Islam Makachev all that he could handle, but I also knew that Makachev was going to test him in ways that he had never been tested before. This vision came to fruition, and Islam Makachev scored a hotly contested but correct decision victory. For these upcoming fights, I'm going to provide you with a comprehensive base of information. At the end of each bout discussed, I'll tell you what probabilistically I think is the most likely outcome. However, my goal is to provide you with the tools and information that will help you choose the right verdict come fight night wagers. Now, without any further ado, Let's get into the five bouts I'll be covering for UFC 275. Yo, yeah. The first bout I chose to cover is Dreykus Duplessis versus Derek Brunson. Dreykus currently sits as a minus 261 to the plus 185 of the veteran Derek Brunson. In terms of percentages, that converts to a 72.3% likelihood of victory for Duplessis to the 35.1% likelihood of Derek Brunson. An amusing note I had before this bout was assigned is that Dreykus Duplessis actually reminds me a lot of Derek Brunson. Both have chaotic but potent striking, offensively at least, while maintaining severe defensive liabilities. Additionally, both men have a crushing top game, albeit... Brunson's with more of a wrestling base, and Dreykus Duplessis with more of a submission grappling background. Now, I get the odds being in favor of Dreykus Duplessis. He won against a big name his last time out in Darren Till, and we saw Derek Brunson get eviscerated by some nasty Jared Cannonier elbows. 
zooming in a bit further on that aspect of analysis, we can see that Darren Till also lost to Derek Brunson in dominant fashion. We must also realize that Derek Brunson was one Jared Cannonier win away from securing a title shot. Jared Cannonier is still an upper-tier fighter in this division, coming off a recent victory over Sean Strickland, while Darren Till has been cut from the UFC promotion. The real knock against Derek Brunson here is that he's 39 years old, 10 years the senior of Dreykus Duplessis. And y'all know if you've been listening to this podcast, I do not believe this is a sport for old men, especially not slow old men with a high loss by finish rate like the blonde bomber, Derek Brunson. That becomes particularly disturbing when we factor in that Dreykus Duplessis has a near 100% finish rate for his career with his only fight going to decision against Brad Tavares two bouts ago. However, I will counter that statement by saying it's not uncommon for a finish-happy younger fighter to struggle to find those finishes as they rise in competition. The names that have finished Derek Brunson include Yoel Romero, Robert Whitaker, Israel Adesanya, and Jared Cannonier. Oh, can't forget Jacare twice, prime Jacare. These fellows are nothing to be trifled with, and each of them has experienced heights in this division that would be a top-tier outcome for Dreykus Duplessis. Another thing that may be fooling Dreykus Duplessis believers in this bout is his recently tabulated 47% takedown accuracy, largely bolstered by his performance against Darren Till. Up until that point in the UFC, he had a hard time grounding his opponents. With his wrestling background, it is actually Derek Brunson who I expect to have the advantage in, in determining the bout's geography. So while I am breaking a golden rule here and going with the fighter far past the age apex, I believe his ability to determine where the fight takes place combined with his superior strength of schedule gives Derek Brunson a much larger window for victory than the odds makers are suggesting. I'm rolling with Brunson outright at plus 185. Yo, yeah. The next bout I'll be covering is Mataj Gamrot versus Jalen Turner. Currently, Gamrot is a minus 209 to the plus 167 of Turner. That converts to a 67.6% implied likelihood of victory for Gamrot to the 37.5% implied likelihood for Jalen Turner. Betters should note that Mataj Gamrot took this fight on three weeks' notice, as did Jalen Turner, who was originally slated to fight Dan Hooker, a striker, and a much different stylistic matchup from Mataj Gamrot. So this, of course, leads to a couple questions. Can Turner, who has struggled somewhat with wrestlers in the past, adapt to the late change in opponent? And can Mataj Gamrot prove that he has the conditioning that he is fight-ready despite the short-notice opportunity? I think we should get some inclination regarding Gamrot by observing his shape come weigh-ins, see how that compares to his prior weigh-ins when he had full fight camps. For Jalen Turner... He has a 77% takedown defense rate, and the only fight of his UFC career where he surrendered more than one takedown is that aforementioned bout against Matt Frivola. Now, clearly, the odds makers here believe in the wrestling pedigree of Mataj Gamrat. As a short-notice replacement, they're giving him a lot of credit. And that scares me a little bit because Jalen Turner is a very dangerous man. He stands at 6'3", 155 pounds, 
has a 77 inch reach, which is absurd for the weight class, is a southpaw and a born bred finisher. It should also be noticed that Jalen Turner has never lost a bout by submission, which in my opinion is Gamrot's clearest path to a finish. If he struggles to get that submission, he's going to have to rely on three rounds of grit and grind with an abbreviated fight camp. While I'm a bit scared of the odds and all of those details being as they are, I do think Mataj Gamrot has an advantage here. He will be the best wrestler that Jalen Turner has ever fought. He's faced a much stronger level of competition with a 78% opponent win rate to the 70% opponent win rate of Jalen Turner and an average opponent wins of 14.87 to the meager 6.83 average opponent wins for Jalen Turner. So at 12 and 5, not only has Jalen Turner failed to win at a consistent rate throughout his career, but he's also done so against a substandard level of competition. Now, let's be real. Jalen Turner is improving. He is dangerous. And this is a tough matchup in many ways for Mataj Gamrat. But he's just now climbing into the real ranks of this division. And Gamrat represents a large step up in this division as well as a complicated stylistic test. I think the Polak hands the Tarantula the first submission loss of his career. Yo, yeah. The third fight on the ledger is between two personal favorites, Shavkat Rachmanov and Jeff Hands of Steel, Neil. Currently, Shavkat Rachmanov sits at an absurd minus 521 to the plus 367 of Jeff Neal. That converts to an 83%, sorry, an 83.9% likelihood of victory for Rachmanov to the 21.4% likelihood of Jeff Neal. Now, what's interesting to me is that when this fight was originally slated, I believe for UFC 283, Rachmanov was in that minus 300 to minus 350 territory. So what changed? Perhaps it's the injury that Jeff Neal sustained that forced the delay to this bout and some information that's trading on insider circles that I'm not privy to. But what I'd bet is that with this additional time, there's been additional eyeballs and hype that have accumulated for Rachmanov. He is a tantalizing talent, and he is rocketing his way through this welterweight division. I do see title contention in his future. But while everybody's busy throwing that minus 500 sure thing Shavkat Rachmanov into their parlays, Jeff Neal is sitting there a very dangerous man. Do we not just see what Jeff Neal did to perennial contender Vicente Luque, who shares a fight camp with Shavkat Rachmanov in his last time out? Uppercut, 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 dropped. For me, that fight cemented what I wanted to know for a long time. Is Jeff Neal back to himself? Is he who he was in 2018-19 athletically? Because if so, he's somebody that is also in the mix of contenders in this division. Because there was a noticeable difference between the man that was dismantling Bilal Muhammad and Mike Perry versus the guy who lost to Neil Magny and Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. So what happens when we have two prime fighters with high finish rates and momentum and expectations combined with good durability locked in the octagon together? I believe that something counterintuitive often happens in these circumstances. These fighters respect one another and as a result 
are more tactical or a little more reserved in their strike selection and attempts to finish the fight. And that's why for this one, I believe that Shavkat Rachmanov is going to win by decision, the first bout to go to distance in his entire mixed martial arts career. And you can get it for pretty good odds too, at plus 310 on FanDuel. Yo, yeah. Next up, we have the co-main event of the evening. That is a bout for the women's flyweight championship of the world between title holder Valentina Bullet Shevchenko and Alexa Grasso. Currently, Valentina Shevchenko sits at a mind-blowing minus <laughs> minus 836 to the plus 528 of Alexa Grasso. That converts to a 89.3% implied likelihood of victory for Shevchenko to the 15.9% implied likelihood of victory for Alexa Grasso. Now, anybody who follows the sport knows about Valentina Shevchenko. She speaks eight languages. She wields an arsenal of deadly weapons with expert precision. She travels the world, does ballet. Oh, and she's a championship cage fighter. Folks aren't kidding around when they suggest that she's some undercover operative moonlighting with all of these hobbies. But there's no doubt about where Valentina Shevchenko's attention is, and that is on her upcoming title fight. She feels disrespected. She feels that many are overlooking her or assessing her weaknesses with a magnifying glass. And she's hell-bent on proving that she is exactly where she belongs. And that's something that we see from all-time greats, that Mamba mentality. She's a minus, what I say, minus 826 favorite. And she's still finding reasons to get out of bed, reasons to be hungry and motivated to destroy And while Shevchenko may be creating narratives in her own mind of being overlooked or unfairly dissected, the fighter who's really being overlooked here is Alexa Grasso, who's being given a sub-20% likelihood of victory. Now, of course, Valentina Shevchenko has the accolades, she has the resume, and if we're going to look stat for stat, she blows Alexa Grasso and pretty much every other woman not named Amanda Nunes out of the water. So the angle that I take here might surprise you. While we saw Valentina Shevchenko struggle with a bigger, stronger grappler in her last bout against Tyler Santos, that isn't the difficulty that I want to zoom in on. In fact, I believe many people are looking at what Tyler Santos did, then looking at the skill profile of Alexa Grasso and realizing that she does not have that same potential route for victory in her range of outcomes. The bone that I've always had to pick with Valentina Shevchenko is in my comparison of her to Jose Aldo. And that is meant as no disrespect. The king of Rio, one of the all-time greats, is the bar that I'm setting. But Jose Aldo had a very clearly defined weakness, and that was his need to control the tempo. Once fighters were able to up the tempo on him, force him into high-volume affairs, Jose Aldo would wilt in the latter rounds should that opponent have the requisite durability and takedown defense to negate Jose Aldo's strong suits. In a similar sense, I believe that the fighter who can make it challenging for Valentina Shevchenko to take them down with those body locks, with those foot sweeps and judo throws, who also forces her into a high-volume firefight, is going to see success. We got a glimpse of this against Ioannian Jacek, who, despite losing that bout, 
was able to maintain a work rate that in the latter rounds fatigued Valentina Shevchenko. Me personally, I believe that Alexa Grasso can be that fighter. She currently outstrikes opponents by 5.6 significant strikes per round, but beyond that, she lands over 25 significant strikes per round. The important variable here will be Alexa Grasso's capacity to take the fire coming back at her while maintaining this high-volume, high-work-rate, cardio-intensive type of fight. Now, Alexa Grasso has been taken down in the past, and as we know, Valentina Shevchenko is able to switch things up as she feels is necessary. But her way of taking fighters down isn't the way that Alexa Grasso has traditionally struggled with, and it even got her in some trouble in that last bout against Tyler Santos. Using these throws, these hip tosses, these foot sweeps, it's a different skill set to defend those compared to the chaining of single and double legs, which Alexa Grasso struggled with against, uh, shit, who? Carla Esparza and uh, Tatiana Suarez. Now, I'm a big Valentina Shevchenko fan, but I think we see her wilt in this fight. First of all, Alexa Grasso's boxing is underrated. That aspect of Valentina Shevchenko's game is maybe overrated. She's a Muay Thai fighter, and while she has sharp hands, good punching technique, she does not chain her boxing together like a boxer. That is a difference between her and Alexa Grasso. Now, Grasso won't be able to kick with Valentina Shevchenko, but if she does apply pressure, if she fights fearlessly like she has in the past, it's going to make it more difficult for Valentina Shevchenko to kick. She's going to be suffocated. Those techniques will have more difficulty extending considering the range. Shevchenko has also not proven to be a prolific leg kicker despite her Muay Thai background. So what we see with many Muay Thai fighters against boxing-oriented fighters is they chop that heavy plant on the lead leg. The damage accumulates quickly and it takes the power and explosiveness away from the boxer. Now, that's not to say that Valentina Shevchenko couldn't apply this strategy, but we must acknowledge that she is a southpaw fighter while Alexa Grasso is the orthodox fighter. That means that the rear leg, the same one that knocked out Jessica I, will be available to Shevchenko, but the leg kicking to the outside calf where the most damage is done with leg kicks will not be possible unless she shows a a proficiency with stance switching that we haven't seen up until this point. So call me crazy, but I'm rolling with my second underdog of the night. I'm taking Alexa Grasso outright to make history. Yo, yeah. Last up is the fight that we've all been waiting for. The return from hiatus of the GOAT, John Bones Jones taking on Cyril Gahn. Currently, John Jones sits as a minus 171 aggregate favorite to the plus 140 underdog of Cyril Gahn. That converts to a 63.1% implied likelihood of victory for John Jones to the 41.7% implied likelihood for Bon Gamon, Cyril Gahn. Now, when this fight was announced, John Jones and Cyril Gahn were even odds, a 50-50 fight. So it's interesting to see in the lead up that confidence in John Jones has been restored, at least to some extent. We've now seen his physique, which has been long debated. He looks strong, not cut, but definitely stronger. We've also gotten some glimpses into the mindset of the two respective fighters. And while I'll touch on that, my primary focus is on the data and the film. 
John Jones is 35 years old to the 32-year-old Cyril Gahn. Both men stand at six foot four, and for his last bout, Cyril Gahn weighed in at 247. I'm guessing John Jones is going to be somewhere between the 240 and 250 pound mark. As is always the case, John Jones holds a reach advantage this time of three and a half inches. But an unusual wrinkle here is that the strength of schedule for Cyril Gahn has been extremely high. Now, that's over 12 fights, but when you think about how strong the overall resume of Cyril Gahn is for just 12 fights, it's pretty mind-blowing, and it's no surprise that in previous times, I have compared his ascension to that of John Jones himself. However, he's fighting John Jones himself. And John Jones has accumulated those similar strength of schedule numbers, but he's done it over 27 career mixed martial arts bouts. So let's review the questions playing into this fight. Regarding John Jones, how does he look at heavyweight? What is his speed like compared to light heavyweight? How's his strength? What skills translate from his light heavyweight reign to his bid at heavyweight? And finally, after watching John Jones' last two bouts against Tiago Santos and Dominic Reyes, which happened over two years ago, is that the guy we see, this lesser version, or at least less dominant version of John Jones, in there with a very tough adversary in Cyril Gahn? And the questions for Gahn. Is this the same guy that was in there with Francis Ngannou, who struggled with takedown defense, who looked exasperated and exhausted in the fifth round? Has he approved upon those weaknesses? And what happens when he fights a competitor as multidimensional as John Jones? Like the odds makers, I'm more concerned about Cyril Gahn. John has taken his time building his body up. I'm not so worried about him athletically. Yes, he's 35 years old, so he's aged past the age apex, but in terms of heavyweight, that is prime of your career, ready to be a long-term champion age. It's kind of like with physics. When you go subatomic, all that Newtonian shit goes out the window. The rules change. Well, the same thing is true at heavyweight. What at lower weight classes is a death knell in the latter half of your 30s is actually a time when many of the greats have accomplished the brunt of their resume. But Gan, he's managed to ascend through this heavyweight division, but he's done so fighting guys that are career heavyweights. John Jones has a level of technical acumen and skill diversity that he hasn't encountered, and it will test the inexperience of Cyril Gan. But that matters little if John Jones can't take Cyril down. So has Cyril Gan's takedown defense improved? The most likely answer is that it has, but only incrementally. It's rare that we see somebody in one fight camp traverse a massive gap in skill. We did see Alexander Volkanovsky recently put on a good display of wrestling or counter-wrestling against Islam Makachev, and we have seen Francis Ngannou improve by leaps and bounds in his wrestling after a camp with Kamaru Usman. But that's a lot to expect from any fighter, even if they are as talented as Cyril Gan. Remember, he's made his headway largely as a Muay Thai fighter with excellent footwork and speed. While these tools can help him negate the wrestling by managing distance, he's going to need to show a yet unseen level of complexity to his game. And of course, it's one thing to level up and do things in the gym with your sparring partners 
And it's another for that to translate against a man who wants to rip your head off, who has been practicing those same skills their entire life with high-level success in the mixed martial arts context. But for me, as much as the wrestling is a cause for concern with Cyril Ghosn, it's also the killer instinct. He's an incredible fighter to watch. But when it comes to pressing the issue, to taking maybe unnecessary risks, if it means being more lethal, more having more ability to finish your opponent, that's not what Cyril Ghosn does. He's happy to take a decision. And if you create the openings, if you make mistakes, he will capitalize so long as you're winging hooks like Tai Tuivasa. But John is going to be too focused, too tenured, too multidimensional. I think he takes this one inside the distance. Yo, yeah. Now that just about wraps up this episode. But before I get out of here, I have to give you a parlay of the pod. So here it is currently at plus 302 on FanDuel. It is Farid Basharat, Tabitha Ritchie, Ian Gary, Mataj Gamrot, and John Jones. There you have it, folks. I really appreciate you tuning in. If you enjoy this program and find it has value, please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, we are heavily dependent on word-of-mouth marketing. We take a lot of time to do the damn thing. If you have like-minded friends or members in this mixed martial arts community who hasn't been exposed to this program, please take the time to do so. It's a massive favor. It is much appreciated. But until next time, I hope you all win your wagers. I hope you have a good weekend. And I hope, most importantly, you enjoy the fights.